This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the podcast, and his name is John Tyson. John is a pastor and church planner in New York City, and he lives in Hell's Kitchen neighborhood there in Manhattan. He's also the lead pastor of Church of the City in NYC. He's originally from Adelaide, Australia, so you'll be able to hear that wonderful accent here in just a second. But he moved to the U.S. over 20 years ago because he wanted to renew the Western Church. That's capital W, capital C, okay? He's written books such as Beautiful Resistance, Rumors of God, Sacred Roots, A Creative Minority, and The Burden is Light. But we spent almost the entire interview talking about his latest book that came out in August of 2021, and it's called The Intentional Father, A Practical Guide to Raise Sons of Courage and Character. Guys, this book that I'm holding up right now, if you're not watching this on YouTube, you should be. This book right here is a wonderful guide for men with young boys or even preteen boys, teenage boys, that they want to have an intentional relationship with their son and usher them into manhood. Guys, we live in a culture here in the West, except for, you know, random religious sex here and there. We live in a culture that does not usher or lead young men into manhood. Men get to self-actualize and decide when they're a man. Maybe it's the first time they have sex or whenever they uh, leave for college or whenever they get their first job, they get to pick that and no one helps them along that journey. Dads aren't helping them along. Uh, you know, grandparents or extended family, the church, their schools, their teams, no one's helping these kids. He's giving us a practical guide. John is giving us a practical guide for how to do this. So this guy for every single day from his son's age 13 until age 18, he did intentional things for him to help him grow into a godly, manly man. I'm not kidding. I mean, he really, really did. We didn't get into all the detail in this interview because we only had about an hour together. But guys, you're definitely going to listen to this. Even if you don't have sons, if you have daughters, there's a lot of wisdom in here. And we actually talk about that. Well, what if I just have daughters? But guys, I don't want to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. John Tyson, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, man. What a joy to be here. Man, it, it was even great talking to you off air. We won't tell everybody, you know, all the things we talked about, but we did come up with a lot of ways that we can get world peace and other things to sustain the planet. So guys, we'll, we'll work on it later. But as a means of introduction to our audience, for anyone that's not familiar with you, you're both a pastor and a church planner in New York City, but you weren't always those things and you didn't always live in New York. So give us, I guess, the 30,000 foot view version of how you ended up as a pastor and a church planner and how you ended up in America. Okay, yeah. I grew up in Australia, which is where I'm uh, from originally, a place called Adelaide, South Australia, famous only for its wines. That's probably the only reason that people have been there. Uh, Dropped out of high school at 16 to uh, be a butcher, started working in a meat factory at 14, had a great entrepreneurial boss who cast some vision about working as opposed to just uh, doing formal education, became a Christian in a radical Pentecostal youth revival at 17. Uh, came to America at 20 with a scholarship to study theology, 
Uh, met my wife, been married 23 years, got two kids. I have a son who's 21, a daughter who's 19. So we're empty nesters now. Moved to New York uh, 16 years ago and uh, heard about church planting in the early 2000s. Had never really heard about it. It wasn't quite a public trend then and felt like this is why I was put on the planet. And uh, so I've been bouncing around in New York doing that ever since. The gift of evangelism. Now I got to ask you as a butcher, what is the best cut of meat? Because there is an answer to that. It's not just opinion. What is the it's single bone in ribeye? Okay. Bone in ribeye. That's what I'm talking about. You're going to get along great with our audience today, but man, I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get into the reason why I really wanted to have you on the show. And it's this book, The Intentional Father, A Practical Guide to Raise Sons of Courage and Character. Guys, I'm going to tell you right now, it's in the show notes. Pause this. If you're driving, pull over to the side of the road, order this book and order the hard copy. It's gorgeous. All right. They did a great job with this thing, but we're going to go into a lot of the details as to the book here, but in, in the most basic form possible, what is the book about? The book is about recovering a lost process to produce healthy men for the good of the world. That's it. And so when you say healthy, so so help me a little bit with that, especially right now, everyone thinks they know about health and they talk about it because they listen to Joe Rogan or something like that. But when you say healthy, specifically in the idea of masculinity, of manhood, what do you mean? Well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so my my conviction is that the greatest man who has ever lived is Jesus. Jesus was the perfect combination of uh, compassion and courage. He knew how to get every moment right. If it required confrontation, he would throw over the tables, make a whip, drive people out. He would also weep at the death of his friends. He was like a fully integrated man, lived for something beyond himself, true greatness, and um, had a, a spirituality and earthliness, understood manual labor, moved in the supernatural. I'm trying to raise up people like Jesus. So to me, that's the ultimate goal is helping dads have a vision to produce their sons to become like Christ. Well, I think it's so interesting that you bring, obviously being a pastor, you bring Christ in the conversation so early because I'm going to go through several quotes from your book. But one that struck me very early in the book was actually from the foreword. And the foreword was written by David Kinneman, who's the president yeah. of Barna, who, which yes. is the entity that kind of helped get the statistics and research together for the book. He yeah. said that churches are not helping fathers find a way to usher boys into manhood. And I would say that I agree with this sentiment. I've talked about this on my show quite a bit. I'm curious as to whether or not you as a pastor, because this is kind of talking about yourself a little bit, whether or not you agree with that assessment. And then I guess overall, culturally, why are most Western boys not initiated or ushered or welcomed into manhood? Well, the the first part of that question about how the church is doing Gee, the American church, the church around the world is so large. The American church is so fragmented. I would say in sort of mainline evangelical churches, uh, we are failing miserably. And what I mean by that is somewhere still around 70% of young people lose their faith when they go into college, first year of college. If we had a plan that resulted in a 70% failure rate, we would probably change our plan. And so my, my... anecdotal and maybe statistically acknowledged uh, evidence is like it's not working. I mean, the rates of uh, depression, particularly against young men, sense of aimlessness, lack of purpose, lack of confidence, extended adolescence, these are all culturally recognized signs. And for the most part, there are some distances and uh, differences and meaningful differences, but Christian uh, young men struggle with the same issues to a staggeringly large amount. So I think the proof is out there. I think we're failing because I think a lot of folks are overwhelmed. I think uh, a lot of churches don't know what to do with the good of male energy. 
And so they don't know how to channel it in redemptive mm -hmm. ways. How do you tap into a man's capacity and ambition? Well, hey, be a greeter doesn't feel exactly like how to utilize right. what it is that a man can do. So I think, yeah, I, I think the culture's overwhelmed us. The church hasn't quite known what to do with male strength. Um, faith often can feel very ethereal and disconnected from real life. And then there's a bunch of stereotypes out there that I think, you know, can produce frustration and disillusionment. So the church has a lot of work to do. Um, and, you know, our church, the challenge I have in my church is that, uh, you know, you've been in New York City. My church mm -hmm. is filled with babies and middle-aged people. I, I don't have, I have very, very few teenagers. The mm -hmm. ones, uh, the dads we do have raising teenagers, honestly, are killing it. Killing Great. it. Great. I could not be more proud of the fathers in my church, particularly with teenage boys. I've got dads who have gotten up every single day to pour into their kids since their sons turned 13. Dads meeting monthly with a cohort of boys to give them real-world training and skills. So we've tried to be intentional in our in our particular community about this and sort of, yeah, model the things that I've written about in the book. Obviously, my son grew up in the church and my relationship with him in that process was on uh, was on display as a whole. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. I can't remember the second question, but that's an answer to the first part of it. Well, no, I, the second place that you basically got to is why Why do you think most Western boys aren't being initiated into manhood? But you, you talked about some things. You touched on stereotypes. You touched on a lot of things. But in the intro of the book, I think you kind of answer this by using another author's words by Ronald Rawheiser. He's, a, yes. you know, he's another Christian author. He basically put, I'm, I'm summarizing here, but he basically asked, do you know what's really killing our young people of today? And the answer that he gives is self-initiation. Yes. And I think that is such a bad thing because basically we're looking to culture, we're looking to dorks yes. on Twitter and idiots on TikTok, and we're, we're getting our, our cues on manhood from those things as opposed to who you already brought up, Christ, who's the ultimate model of manhood. What is kind of your, your vision or what you see around the issue that is coming from this self-initiation? Well, it's it's happening. It's a God-designed process. Somewhere in the early early adolescence, whether that's you know between ten or thirteen, maybe a little later, you begin to undergo very very real changes. There's a huge like wash of testosterone begins to develop at a disproportionate rate. All of a sudden, you view reality differently. You're becoming more competitive. You're interested in the opposite sex. All of these, it feels like you've inherited a different world. So you've got all of these confusing, potent energies, and you're trying to figure out what to do with it. It's a very, very confusing time. You, a man will go outside of him. These energies are directed externally. They must find expression because they're de designed by God to find expression. And without wise, compassionate guides, understanding guides to get us through that, people will self-initiate. And we see this all the time. We see uh, people self-initiating with their sexuality, self-initiating with violence, self-initiating with energy, self-initiating with money, or failure to initiate, which is then you know what forms into unformed men. And uh, so I think this is one of the Christian advantages that we have. This is, I, forget that. It's something we can offer to the world as a whole, reclaiming this ancient process and then normalizing it in our communities. The number one feedback I got, like again, my son's about to turn 22, so this was almost a decade ago. Mm -hmm. The number one piece of feedback I got from people around me was, how do I get help doing what you're doing with your son? It was such 
a point of attraction for other men. Mm-hmm. And every and my conviction is every dad at the core of his being has a desire to be a good father. Most of them feel overwhelmed, either mm-hmm. with personal brokenness or a lack of knowledge to know what to do because they never experienced it themselves. And so I think recovering this process and offering it to others is a huge thing that Christians can bring to the table. What it leads to, John, is you have these young men that are in the church that don't really see a place for themselves, and then they grow up to be men who leave the church because there was no place for them. And I told people this, I was on a debate show over in the UK and I'm like, look, if the church keeps sending signals that there's nothing for men to do, men will go do something else. Like it's exactly what you said. They will use their skill sets to do something. And it might be preparing for fantasy football draft. It might be going to the shooting range. It might be going playing some pickup basketball. They're going to do something else, whether it's productive in your mind or not. And so the thing that I like about your book is you don't leave a lot to the imagination. You spell it out for guys like, hey, here's your roadmap if you want to use it. So the book, other than the intro, is broken up into four main sections. It's preparation, initiation, formation, recognition. And then in the introduction, I think it's great to at least mention this. You talked about five types of fathers. And I think just even as I talk about these fathers, guys will be able to self-categorize. But there's the irresponsible father, the ignorant father, the inconsistent father, the involved father, but then there's the intentional father, which is what you're trying to train all these people to be. But I do want to go ahead and get into the first main section, which is preparation. You brought up four questions that I thought were amazing that, to be honest with you, John, since I read them, have almost been haunting me because I have an 18-month-year-old son and another son, Lord willing, on the way here very soon. And the four questions were, what do you want your son to know about God, about himself, and about life? Who do you want your son to be? What skills do you want your son to have? And what formational experiences do you want him to have? So you could have asked a million questions, and I'm not going to have have you respond to all of them, but you can kind of pick and choose. But why are those kind of the four core questions that a dad should really reckon with? Well, I mean, I I felt like there's probably a hundred helpful questions, but particularly because young people, young teenagers in particular, they're so malleable. They're so shapeable. They're developing their values. They're developing their worldview. And so I just found myself when I was meditating, like, what are the essential characters for my own son? I want to make sure I deposit in him. It was basically, I want him to have character. I want him to know, I want him to be a man of wisdom. I want him to have skills. And then I want to create circumstances that actually facilitate this so it's not all head knowledge. Somebody on Twitter, I think, put out and said, hey, do you know that this is like identical to like the Army Rangers uh, process of formation? I was like, no, I've never even heard that. Hmm. But apparently it's the same sort of thing. It's about character. It's about skill. Uh, it's about um, wisdom, knowing the right things that need to happen. So I would think, where do most young men feel overwhelmed? It's like they, they don't know who to be. They don't know what to do. And if we can create sort of conscious environments that draw them out, safe places to fail, to question, to experiment, mm-hmm. to learn, to grow, I think that when they head out into the world, we're going to have people who are formed in the right places. And you can build a a thousand beautiful things on top of the right foundation, but with the wrong foundation, nothing's going to last. Yeah, it's certainly not going to last, and there's going to be nothing for them to give on to the next side. So that's the thing that I found really amazing about this is if you think about it, if you had woundedness, which you brought up earlier, you're going to carry that woundedness on even if you don't want to, even if you're not aware of it. And so imagine if you're carrying around generational woundedness, that becomes a major issue, not just for your sons, but for the rest Mm -hmm. of your progeny. But then you move on from that section, then we really start getting into the meat of how to do this. And you talk about an initiation, the initiation phase, if you will. And in this section, you talk about something I've never heard of before. 
and it's called the severing dinner. Okay. Yes, and that's, yeah, that's between- the most <laughs> controversial part I can't anything I talk about. Yes. All right. So I'm, I'm going to summarize what I think about it and then you can correct the record. But a okay. severing dinner is basically where you send your son, 13 years old, out with mom. They do a dinner. Mom, you know, says all the things she loves about him and all these things, but basically explains to the son, your dad is now going to be taking on, or maybe you don't say this explicitly, daddy is now the main parent for you. Like I've done all I can with you up to this point, but your dad's going to be the main figurehead for you at this point. And, you know, for the kid, for the son, it's like, uh, maybe they're a little bit confused. Maybe it's not as grandiose as a moment, but for mom, for the lioness in the situation, I just got to tell you right from the very beginning, John, it struck me as odd. It struck me as highly unnecessary. And my wife is a legitimate lioness. So I'm like, I don't want her to like take the next five years off, but I know you put a lot of thought and really philosophy into why you would even want to do a severing dinner. So you go and give me the reasons why I'm wrong, why it's not weird, why it's not odd. Okay, so James Hollis, who's a Jungian psychologist and is probably one of the secret sources between Richard Raw's halftime stuff and a lot of Ronald Rollheiser's stuff, says that all societies that have ever existed almost by divine blueprint have had a six-step process for raising young men. And this is like where I basically build a chunk of my stuff off. He said, but the first two steps are interesting. The first one is the removal from the childhood environment. There has to be a conscious whole life shift where a person knows they're stepping into a different season. And then number two, the death of childhood psychology. There has to be a moment when the child is shocked. And this is why, you know, the sort of ancient tribes would sometimes do circumcision at 13 or whatever, mm. remove them from the presence of women, physical change, pain, healing, uh, belonging, and all the rest of it. So he basically acknowledged you need to have these moments where you realize it's not just more of the same, but something is radically different. Now, my wife is an alpha apex predator. I mm-hmm. mean, she's an eight on the Enneagram. She's a super strong woman. She's a survivor. She's an overcomer. She's been through hell and she's made it with, you know, with a, a beautiful countenance. Um, but there's something important about a boy knowing that he is entering into a journey with a community of men that will be his primary shaping force. Now, my wife today may have a better relationship with my son than I do. We Hmm. both have an amazing relationship. So I'm not telling mums to take time off, but here's what I've noticed. A lot of mums tend to have a a default nurturing mechanism, which which I, I, I will violently reduce to they're there. Okay. They're there. It's yeah. really hard. Mom, it's, they're there. And dads tend to have a pushing mechanism, which is level up. You can do it. And a lot of times what I was trying to do in that moment was, and I, I saw this happen a lot with my son. Um, he would want to go back and say, this is really hard. Getting up early is hard. Dad's pushing me and collapse back to comfort. And the whole goal was for the mother, not to disengage, but to say, mm-hmm. I want to push you back towards your father. He's doing this because he loves you. And she could she could soften the intensity of the process, which I, I believe would lead to underdevelopment. Now, when I was hiking across Spain, we did the 500-mile um, hike across Spain to sort of close our journey. I asked my son, I said, hey, Nate, I'm getting a ton of pushback on the severing dinner. What do you think? <laughs> and he responded with such passion. He said, you cannot leave that out of the book. He said that was the most helpful thing psychologically to frame the whole process up. And he said, I love mum. We both know mum's a really strong woman. But there was something about me knowing I was entering into these years with you as my primary guide that was super helpful for me. So ancient societies felt it was necessary. 
Um, and I believe there is some something psychically formative about severing that the there there bond mm -hmm. that pushes them forward into something else. But I say to people, it's a it's a guide. You don't want to do it, skip it. Hey, that that's is it. I'm a pragmatist, man. <laughs> right. Like uh, people want to look at something and they're assuming that you're saying, hey, you should follow this to the T. But I don't know how many times in your book you're like, you don't have to do all of these things the exact way that I'm describing. But that does seem like a seminal point that I, I really wanted to ask you about. And it's not surprising in the least bit, especially living in the age that we live in now, that people that would strike them as odd and something that would not be, you know, a great thing for everybody. But again, having your wife on board, I'm sure she, it wasn't the most fun thing for her. You described that in the book, but it was very, very important. And another thing that was important from the section where you talk about initiation, you bring up this concept of defining the values of the men that I guess, bury your family name. So in other words, this is what a Tyson man is. This is what a Thompson man stands for, like that type of a thing. And immediately as I was reading it, I start writing in the margins of the book, you know, things that I think a Thompson man should stand for. So resilience, honesty, reliability, discipline, courage. And I wrote down all these things. Some of those were similar and overlapped with some that you would say for a Tyson man. But why is that so important for dads? Not just to be like, okay, here are the things I want my kid to know how to do. I want them to know how to change a tire and throw a spiral, like uh, those types of things. But saying here are the definitive qualities of what makes a fill in the blank man, a fill in the blank man. I think God's desire is for our lives generation by generation to get better and distribute more blessing into the future. I think God is a generational God. And if we are stewarding our own stories well and, and desiring to have a godly legacy that we leave into the future, we have to discern what these things are and we have to pass them forward. The problem with a lot of young folks today is, and a part of this is, is not, is, uh, chronological and a part of it is generational. When you're young, you think the whole world started when you were born. You cannot conceive of any history that really mattered before you had sort of conscious awareness of life. And we do live in a generation that's, that is severed for the most part from previous generations in healthy ways and looks only with disregard. A lot of them look at the you know, I'm just thinking about media interviews I've seen with teenagers. Mm -hmm. They look at the world and they think you've been poor stewards of creation. Right. They look at violence in culture and they say, you fail to bring a society of peace. They look at excess and say, you fail to pass on any sort of self-control or restraint. So this is a lot of criticisms, some of it genuine, of previous generations. And I want to push back on that and say, hey, no, there's good things you need that you will miss out on if you do not receive, because I have walked faithfully with God and I have handled a large section of my business and I've got some wisdom and stuff to pass on to you. And I, I think that there is there can be an ache and a longing to know that we're a part of something bigger. My greatest longing growing up, I would see other families that had these multi-generational traditions, either property that they own going to family homes, family properties that grandparents had brought, or traditions that would happen at, at Christmas and other times. And my home, for a lot of different reasons, had very few of those. And... I, I ached to be a part of a story larger than mine that was an inherited blessing that I got to pass on. I'll tell you something that's interesting. that The two families that understand the importance of generational stories are the poor and the ultra-wealthy. It's the mm. middle class that don't value them. For the most part, 
the poorer stewarding stories of pain and struggle, overcoming and courage. You don't know where we've come from. You don't know what we've been through to get here. Do not forget your past and what it cost us. Hmm. The wealthy are often stewarding stories of privilege. Do you know the success your grandfather had? Do you know how we got this money? Don't screw up where we've been. For the most part, it's middle-class people who are so consumed with their own stories, they forget to pass this on. And I think that there's tremendous value in doing it. Well, I just got to be honest with you. I don't know what a Thompson man is. And the fact that I'm even asking that question proves that point because I grew up middle class between lower to upper middle class for most of my life. And there was no conversation around that. So I can't imagine what it's going to be like for my son whenever I defined for him, hey, here's what a Thompson man is. He doesn't know any better. I'm not going to say your great, great, great grandpa Thompson said this, this, and this. It's going to be a little bit different, but it is going to have have a large impact on him. So you've taken us so far through preparation. We just wrapped up initiation, but then you get into formation. This is where we really start you know, getting down to the nitty gritty of how we're going to be doing these things. And in this section, I you you talk about a lot of different things. Again, guys, you're just going to have to go get the book. We are barely scratching the surface here, okay? But you talk about preparing for big moments, okay? Mm-hmm. So, and you threw out a bunch of examples like first girlfriend, first time shaving, first exposure to porn or drugs or, or first exposure to death, you know, sickness, those types of things. Why are these big moments so big? And, and how can we as intentional fathers capitalize on those big moments? Well, th- there's something about our neuroplasticity and how our brains work, where there's been a ton of research that showed basically the major memories, uh, memories are encoded, deeply encoded, which means we carry them and retrieve them and live from them in moments of trauma, in moments of beauty, and they're disproportionately susceptible in our late teenage years and our early 20s. That's why if you ask someone, you know, like, what's your favorite song? It's often something that was like your first year of college or mm-hmm. late high school. There's some sort of like depth to them that is that is just wired by God there. And so I think, you know, we can do tremendous power in getting these right. So that's a part of the way of leaving a, a lifetime legacy. One of the most um, meaningful things my son has ever said to me, he's, this was last year. He was he had come home from college. Uh, he was around in the summer. We're driving along. And he said to me, we're talking about how one of his friends was struggling right now. Hmm. And he was struggling with a bunch of stuff for a bunch of different reasons. And my son, while I was driving along, said to me, Dad, I've been thinking about my childhood and my friend and how when you grow up, there's all these moments that your dad is meant to give you and they're meant to do stuff in you that you carry through your life. And I just want to say thank you because I know that you created all those moments for me and they're in my heart. And I said, and that's an amazing thing to have your son say to you. I mean, that's it's, great. A, it's a tearjerker. Yeah. So I said, well, what are some of the things that stood out? And I was stunned with the way that he was able to recall some of the intentional things I did. But then surprisingly, some things that I thought weren't that big a deal were life-altering for him. Just moments where I was like, you know what? I don't know if I've got the energy, but let me just do it anyway. Some Mm. of those smaller moments were things that he really carried in his heart. Some of the, should I say it or not? You know what? Let me just say it. And that's those words pierced his heart, encouraged him and stayed with him. So, you know, Jim Rohn, an old self-help guy that, you know, I actually really respect and have appreciated a lot of his stuff. He said, life is measured by the, intensity and frequency of beautiful moments like that that's what it is it's intense moments that stay with us and the more we can consciously curate those and be aware of the ones that he's experiencing on his own so for example Mm -hmm. when i talked about first exposure to porn 
the first time someone sees, and all porn today is hardcore porn. We're not talking about playboys seeing a topless yeah. woman. What happens in a kid's head when that happens? That there's a, a desire for more, a sense of shame, particularly if they grow up in a household of faith, an awareness of consciously violating a moral boundary. How you handle that moment will create shame or godly repentance for the rest of their life. You don't want to wing something that powerful. And so to me, the more time we spend in advance thinking about these and then consciously working to create these, I think the better job we can do at leaving a godly and healthy legacy. I talk about the book, The Power of Moments in there, and mm -hmm. I think that that book is a masterclass uh, on how to create those moments well. Well, John, the reality is, is everybody remembers stuff from childhood, right? Yeah, we all remember totally. stuff, whether it was intentional from our fathers or not. And I think a lot of guys that are, are like slaves to authenticity or something like that will be like, well, I want the moments to just happen naturally. I don't want to plan for it. It's like, why? If the moment's awesome, like, is this about you or is this about your son? So like, I just the thought of like, you know, taking your kid out of school early to go to an afternoon baseball game in your community or waking him up in the middle of the night because some big news thing happened. You wanted him to see it live on television. Like, I, I think those are, are things that are so minor, but it's going to be so much better than the little bit more sleep they would have gotten or that one or two hours that you're going to miss from work, you know, the little bit of vacation that you had to take. So I, I think the winging it process is what causes a lot of issues for guys because guys will just not wing it that you know they'll they'll keep the arrow in their quiver as it were yeah i agree what i'm trying to develop is an instinct of awareness of right. moments like I, like these years are so disproportionately formative you're always just scanning and asking the question how do i make this moment matter or does this moment matter or how can i how can i push this to matter and so to me i think that's really important a, a lot of folks you know, part of the feedback I get, which I don't think your 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 audience may be different. Mm. A lot of pushback I get is like, "Man, this is so intense," and I was like, "You know, like this is so much." So I say, "You you want to know what's intense? When your kid comes and tells you you filled my life with wounds, mm. Mm. that that's what's intense." And I that can sucks tell you, way worse. Yeah, and I can tell you now, after having my son out of the house for four years almost, um, if I had my time again, I would have gone harder not dialed it down. If I would I would very very gladly trade 100 hours that I spent watching TV or movies for 100 hours with my son again. So I'm telling you like you you will regret not making moments more than you will um working hard to create beautiful ones. I mean, I think about that literally all the time because we live in this culture where it's, so I just binge watched this show on Netflix or on Amazon Prime and then it's like, okay, when's the next show or what show am I going to move yeah, to totally. now? And it's all these people that are looking for 10 more hours of distraction from their normal life. And it's like, bro, when's the last time you read a book? When's the last time you put on your running shoes? Like, when's the last time you spent, took your wife oh, on a date and we're worried about Squid Game season two? Like, what are we talking about here? Um, yeah. Now, I do want to get into uh, a little bit because from that section at the beginning of chapter 10, that's a chapter called Being Good at Being a Man. You have this quote that I wanted to ask you about. And the quote's this, young men today don't aspire to a moralistic vision of generic goodness. They want a deep understanding of what a man actually is and how to be good at that. They want the vision and skill to master the art of manhood. I will say, when I read that quote, I highlighted it, and in the margin I wrote, I don't agree. 
I don't see modern kids this way at all. I see most of these men looking for cheat codes of how they can, you know, kind of get away with doing just enough or getting away with doing just enough to where they're not accused of being toxically masculine or where they're not violating, you know, the, the you know, whether, I, oh, I want to ask this girl on a date, but I don't want to seem, I want to come off too strong. Or I, I see this generic morality all over the place in this generic goodness. And I see people, especially kids, more focused on potentially being an influencer on TikTok or YouTube someday than they are about the art of manhood. And perhaps I'm a little bit just jaded or cynical about what I see in the world, but kind of help me understand a little bit more about that quote. Well, I think I was, you know, taking perhaps a, a maybe a cheap shot at the vision of modern American men's ministry, mm-hmm. you know, and particularly the past. And I, and I, I, again, I'm aware of the complexities, generational brokenness. So I, I, I don't think I named names in there, but I would say this, in in the typical men's movement, it's all about struggling not to. I'm Mm -hmm. trying not to look at porn. I'm trying not to take my job too seriously. And it's like it's a man with muted passions, with a tucked-in polo shirt and khaki pants, just overwhelmed with obligation and responsibility, you know, like, a, 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 I'm, again, I'm trying to be careful, but like a oh, busy careful, suburban- baby. We need it. Bring it. Let's go. A busy suburban dad who can't quite handle his life. Mm-hmm. And I'm simply just saying, you're not going to win a young person's heart with that sort of vision. God has created men to desire significance. He has put ambition in them. He's made their bodies strong. He's filled them with desire. And when I look at Jesus, I don't see a a, a busy, overwhelmed person who didn't live with passion from his heart. So what I'm trying to basically do is activate a desire in men to model to their sons a life from the heart filled with passion to the full like Jesus offered and not some lame, moderate, suburban, American tame, measured, balanced life. Right. That, I'm, I'm at war with that, you know? Right. You, well, you, there's so many people that are at war with the alpha male and it's like the alpha male is not going to destroy us. It's the beta male. And I'm using those pejoratively as kind of these broad stroke terms and all that. And no, I don't mean how much you can mint press or what types of things you're into. I mean, having the attitude of a beta. Some of this, I think, goes back to churches that spend all this time focusing on Lamb of God and no time focusing on Lion of Judah. And these young men, you know, maybe they're not as attracted to this, you know, soft featured white guy, Jesus, that's got blonde hair and blue eyes and just goes around smooching people and and telling them how cute they look that day. Maybe that's not the Jesus that's going to get these men fired up. But I I think this attaches to something that you say, because one of the names you did name was Jack Donovan. You know, this is a secular guy who wrote the book, The Way of Men. And he's very critical of these Christians, men's movements, because he says they're cliches. That's all these movements are. They're ineffective because everything is about focusing on being a good man. While as we're not defining what a good man is, but it goes to what you're saying, a good man doesn't do these things, but we don't spend any time focusing on what a good man actually does. So why is it that somebody from the secular world that shouldn't really have a worldview that even, you know, reckons with these types of things, how can he nail the issue so well in all these, you know, godly groups, these Christian men's groups that just throw you in a circle and say, talk about yourselves? Like, how are they getting it so wrong? Well, I think some. I think there's two forces. One is internal, and one is external. 
Number one, we're in a spiritual war, and one of the great tools of Satan is to think to get Christians to think that any form of conflict is ungodly. Mm. The Bible is filled with conflict. Right. It's extraordinary how much conflict there is. Second, it's got, but you've got to be in the right fight for the right cause with the right attitude. I think, uh, so I think that's a huge force where we're like, we're, we're continually like reducing our passions. We're not wanting to offend. I think that that is a toxic part of our culture because it is driven by people who don't care what you think, who are violently using their power to silence you. So again, it's a, it's a form of cultural hypocrisy, but Christians not wanting to alienate people from Jesus, I think, are very, very susceptible to that. I think on the inside as well, inside the church, um, I think, again, there's, there's been so many bad examples. of there, there, there is such a thing as toxic masculinity. I mean, it exists in the world and it exists inside the church. Um, but we're so overreacting to it that we're actually falling into the opposite trap. A passive man is a gift to nobody. And that's mm. why in the, when I talk about the values, I address this in Proverbs chapter 31. It says, do not give your strength to women, your vigor to those who ruin kings. And my whole point is like male strength and vigor is a gift. The key is to handle it and channel it in the right direction. I'm working on a book right now and a little bit of a project called Restoring Kings. And the whole thing is basically about, it's like, it's for men that they don't, it's for men who didn't get the primal path growing up. And my whole contention is about how to activate and channel male energy. So I think, again, the church has been, it, it's so reactive. It feels threatened by strong men. I think Jesus would be kicked out of most churches today. Jesus would be right. seen as, as a fundamentalist and they'd kick him out and they'd say he's too intense. So to me, trying to, my goal is to get Jesus back at the center. When you read the gospels, Jesus is more shocking and more passionate than any of us are truly comfortable with. He is 100% lamb and 100% lion. He's 100% grace, 100% truth. I think part of the reason people think is that if they pour enough of those two things into the Jesus bowl, they'll get 100% of something, but he's not 75% lamb, 25% lion. Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't exist in that type of a mindset, even yes. though that would be easier for us to all digest. So, you know, again, we're kind of, you know, going quickly through all this, but we only have so much time. So we got preparation initiation, formation, and then we get to the end and that's recognition. Okay. Mm. So this is kind of at the end of everything. You mentioned the hiking trip that you and your son went on in Spain. This is a ceremony of welcome and blessing. And I don't have a question prepared for this side. I just want to give you a little bit of space to explain why the recognition portion is so important and what guys should be thinking about as they're kind of moving towards this area. Well, a big part of it is about uh, identity. I mean, there's a very, very simple psychological concept. We get our sense of worth based on the person whose opinion we value the most. I mean, that's where we're, that's where our, our line of recognition. We know it should be God, uh, but there's something I think within within a man's heart where he's looking for blessing and recognition from his father. This is like I've, I've been a pastor for 25 years. Uh, you know, I, I I've seen thousands and thousands of people come through our church in New York. I was a youth pastor before that in, in large mega churches. There is something about every man that aches for the recognition of his father to say, way to go. I'm proud of you. I love you. I bless you. It is one of the most primal forces on planet earth. If you've seen, I don't know if you saw Ad Astra, a powerful movie about fatherhood or, um, 
what was the one uh, behind the pines uh, about multi-generational impact? All of these these things have the same story. I'm wounded and I ache for blessing. And you're either going to live from blessing or you're going to strive for blessing. And I think one of the greatest things we can do is create a, a foundation of blessing in the life of our sons. So I think there's a primal need where people ache for that. Um, secondarily, I think people desire to belong to a community of men. Where in our world today are there environments where men can be vulnerable and accepted and pushed and challenged? Where, where is that? Like that, there's very, the, the only place, I'm telling you, the only place I think I find this is in cigar bars. Like if I get into a cigar bar, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's about an hour to, to have a smoke and you sit around and you talk. And in, in Manhattan, sometimes I'm, I'm doing this with investment bankers and sometimes construction workers all, and I'm, constantly amazed at how that desire for a sense of belonging and recognition in the community of men is potent. So letting young men know you can have a healthy sense of identity, you can have this formed inside a community of men, I think that's one of the things we offer to the world again. So my son feels like he has almost like a, a council around him. If he's got problems with money, there's an expert in his life he can go to. He, so he's got like this this brotherhood, this this older brotherhood because they're older than him. But that sort of tribe and belonging, I think, is hugely important. Um, Christians have historically done very well at this. And American society, going back to Benjamin Franklin and his desire to create you know associations of belonging, this has been a strength of our nation, but it's all fragmented. And so I think we give that recognition back. We give them a tribe to belong to. We're going to create a force of good in the world. Well, guys, that's why I think it's such a, a good idea for you to get this book, The Intentional Father, um, because you do lay all these things out. And there are more areas uh, that I disagreed with you in the book, but that like there are a lot of areas of agreement. And that's the thing you said it earlier. You don't have to take this thing whole cloth. If you do, you're probably not going to mess it up too bad, but you can obviously put your own flavor in it. Your family background's different, where you live's different. Like not everyone can go to Spain and do a, a hiking trip. Like it's just different. But guys, there's a lot of really great tools in here, but you have other tools as well that are just outside of this book and the other books that you've written. And you've mentioned it, I believe, earlier in our interview here, and that's the primal path. Okay. So what is the primal path and how does it, I guess, work alongside the intentional father? Well, the intentional father is, you know, the primal path is more expensive and, you know, I wanted dads to have skin in the game um, and it takes a little longer to go through. Um, but, you know, most of the content of the primal path is in the book. I, I will tell you something I'm working on right now, which is the number one request I get both from the course and from the book. You know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. You know, a lot of what I do for a living is content. It's thinking, it's analyzing, it's solving right. problems, it's teaching. So it is a lot easier for me to say, hey, let me design a six-year journey for my son and come up with content every day. A lot of dads are busy. And so a lot of the places where people get stuck, it's like, hey, man, do you have like a Bible study in the life of David or Joseph or Jacob or Jesus? Or, and, uh, and at the point I've said like, no, you do the work and you will fill in the gaps of your own formation and grow. But honestly, I realize this may be something that I have a like a capacity in and I probably need to steward a little better. So right now I'm working with the Primal Path on a four-year scope and sequence, like a college degree, but for high school kids, about how dads can actually take this. And again, you could use those as like discussion guides. You could use those as like, you know, stuff you want for yourself. But I'm designing the Primal Path 
to be a little bit more comprehensive in the book. So for dads who say, I don't know if I can do six weeks with my son on porn, sexuality, masturbation, dating, marriage, and women, off the top of my head, it's like, hey, man, (laughs) I got you. Here's at least a really helpful starting point. So I'm trying to make the primal path a little more robust for guys who want to take it to another level. And guys, I'll have a link to what the Primal Path is currently in the notes so you can check that out. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about that off air. That sounds pretty interesting. But I I always try to be very sensitive to what I think my listeners would want to ask. And I know that the minute I mentioned that you were a pastor in New York City, that guys are going to want me to ask something along these lines. So New York City which is a shock to nobody, is very liberal. It's very, um, whenever I lived there, I was shocked by the depravity in that city, by the darkness in that city, which makes it right for the gospel, right? Yeah, because there yeah. is a lot of darkness in that city and, and in that state that needs to be pushed back on. The state itself is very pro-baby murder, otherwise known as abortion. The state house cheered when they basically made abortion legal through the day of birth. It's pro-LGBTQ lifestyle, not just feelings, but the entire lifestyle, the entire array of that. You know, two things that are very counter to the Christian worldview in practice. How do you, as a pastor that wants to be relevant, but not so relevant that you're not, you know, gospel centered and biblical, how do you speak into those issues, uh, you know, in your city, in your state without being ran out of town? Well, I mean, I'll I tell you an interesting thing. Part of it is about having courage. I did a series called The Controversial Jesus, and that to me is probably worth your listeners. I talk about Jesus in the gay community, Jesus in the transgender community, Jesus and women, um, Jesus and politics, tr- Jesus and mammon. I try to hit like the biggest issues no one's willing to touch and to go at them with my highest level of skill and teaching that I could. So I recommend those resources if people want to actually listen to how I've handled it uh, in the past. When I first moved to New York, this is 2005, I met with a Christian leader who'd been there a long time and I said, I'm an open book. Give me any advice what do you want to say to me? And it was the shortest meeting I've ever had. He said this, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's mm. what Jesus said. Yeah. And that was the meeting. You want to talk about it like never <laughs> give up. You know, it's just like, and here I am talking about a 60 minute, 16 years later, very, very potent meeting. So I've tried to do that. Now, Christians can be offensive in an ungodly way. Sure. But we will always have some sort of godly offense in a secular culture. So it's inevitable. So number one, I've broken, I think, the fear of man in my heart. I realize that uh, I'm in a spiritual war. I realize that uh, the culture thinks that what I believe is unhealthy and unhelpful. They think it's as wrong as I think that what they think is as wrong. I'm trying to be disruptive but not disrespectful, and I think that's the way I'm trying to do it. The Bible in uh, 1 Peter 3 obviously says, do this with gentleness and respect. But I want to be persuasive. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to speak with conviction. But my number one thing I'm trying to work on is building a countercultural community. And that's what I think the church should be. So often the church is yelling at the, you know, the LGBTQ community while you've got men binging on porn and treating their wives terribly. You know? And so it's like we got to get our house in order. It doesn't mean we wait till it's hundred percent in order before we share our convictions and speak out. But so f- we are so far lagging behind. And I also try and be an equal opportunity offender as well. And coming from Australia, and I'm now a US citizen, but I'm, you know, I don't think America is the promised land. I think Jesus' kingdom of heaven is in every culture, in every place where Jesus is preached and submitted to his Lord. 
So I'm willing to be an equal opportunity offender. So for example, um, when everybody was hating on Trump and there was like so much Trump hatred in New York, Manhattan, um, where I've been the last 16 years, you know, 90% uh, voted for, for Biden. It's obviously a democratic city. But I would say to you, know, how many of you are disgusted by, you know, Donald Trump and his behavior, you know, and how many of you have looked at violent images of women and masturbated to it this month looking at pornography? Now, I said that from the pulpit. The main, I'm not trying to be like Driscoll at all, but I think that those sort of honest confrontations where we get the log out of our own eye and we, we realize that judgment begins in the house of God and we preach that, I think that builds a counterculture that I think in some way shows the world what's possible. I think in a lot of ways, uh, bullying and some of the language aside, I think the the church could use a little bit more Driscoll because the the salt and light that we're called to be, we can't be a preservative that salt was meant to be used as if we're not salty. And again, you you put it out there, it's like our message should be offensive because the gospel is very offensive to every other worldview that's not the, centered in the gospel, but the way that you present it should not be. But uh, one thing that I think was is kind of interesting for you is you came from Australia. Now you're in the United States, but you're in New York City, which is mm-hmm. kind of like not the United States, no, it's but kind of is. Like, it's definitely yeah, it's, Europe. Yeah, it's like its own country or something like that. But during this time of COVID, which we're in year three of all this with the lockdowns and in Australia, they basically have like internment camps. Yeah. It's, it's very, very weird. And the thing I'm also seeing that's weird. I don't really know what my question is here, but I'm seeing Romans 13 thrown around a lot, you know, uh, as a reason for us to just go along with whatever the governing authorities tell us to do. And then others are using Romans 13 as the exact reason why should we should resist the government authorities. And, you know, we should clearly try to overthrow the things that they're doing, uh, without regard for, for godly authority. But for you, how do you act as not just another Christian, but as a pastor, as a leader, as as a shepherd of people in these times where the government is basically telling the church what it can do, telling us to separate people into vaccinated, unvaccinated, or clean and unclean? How do you traverse that? It seems impossible. Well, I mean, it is impossible. That is, it seems impossible. It's impossible. So I've had people, you know, it, it's, it's a, two thoughts on that. Number one, just in terms of demographic trends and sociology, I just uh, posted today and then again, uh, something last year. It's amazing how many people are moving to the South. Right, the, top you, 10, the top 10 yeah. areas of where people are moving are all red states, all those cities. Yeah. I mean, if, if I was in politics, rather than just accusing everybody for doing that, I would try and understand the reasoning behind. What is, what is it about these other parts of the country that is making people bleed out from them and, and want to go into different environments. I, I don't have an opinion on that. I just, that's a, a fascinating thing to me. The Southern states traditionally, um, or, or even during COVID have, you know, defied a lot of the uh, orders and had mm-hmm. a larger sense of freedom. I think you've got to be wise. What, what is the goal? Uh, it's to be a godly, wise man. So how do you handle these things with wisdom? And I think for me, it's like place to place, it's very, very different. I got COVID in March 2020. My wife got it. This is right on the front end. My wife is in bed for a month and almost died. I'm grateful for the vaccine in many ways. You look at the ways um, people's like, like I just actually just saw a chart this morning. It's like the people who are dying for the most part are unvaccinated people. Now, Am I a, like a vaccine pusher? No, I want to be wise in how all of these things play together. 
what I what I think should happen is that Christians should live with a freedom of conscience. I think pastors should lead as much as they can from the scriptures. They should obey where they must. They should defy where they must. But I'll tell you this, moralizing it, moralizing it, and then hating other Christians because of it is not building credibility in the eyes of the world. I tell people, so, you know, in New York City, if you are old and, and maybe it's like, this is why I left, I'm still there, but over five years of age, you're required to be vaccinated to participate in the social contract. Like if you're going to go to a restaurant, you have to have proof of vaccine or whatever. Right. Um, we don't require proof of vaccine at our church. It's like, I, that's a line I'm not willing to make. I'm not going to say, hey, you have to show a vaccine card at the door. Um, and I believe that the US still has places for exe exemptions and that sort of thing. What I get frustrated about is I tell people, I've been in New York 16 years. I've preached on all the hard topics. I've lived with conviction. I've modeled integrity. And if you're going to leave our church over a requirement we have or a refusal to have a requirement like mm -hmm. that, hey, you know what? You probably should because I, in my mind, you are not on the same mission that I am. And you have taken something that is a secondary issue. You've moralized it to a first principle issue. And you're not, you're not centered on Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, that may offend some people. That's fine. Show me in the Bible where a mask or a vaccine is a central issue in the kingdom of God. It's not a condensed symbol, and people keep trying to make it one. And so to me, we need to be gracious with one another. We need to be wise where we are. I'm never mean or snarky. I always try and be pastorally responsible. I read deeply on both sides of the issues. There's different convictions from people I fundamentally respect on both sides of all of these issues. I try and serve Jesus faithfully where I am, be a counterculture. Well, John, it's so much easier to deal with life when we can granular, granularize everything. Right, if we make everything about the mask, because I know people that have left churches because they had a mask mandate. I know people that have left churches because they didn't have a mask mandate. And I was just like, is is your discipleship with under that, you know, shepherd so weak that it can be altered with one thing that doesn't seem to be like that big of a deal? And I feel like I opened up a can of worms without having a you know requisite time to really deal with it. But I want to go ahead and move into the last section of the show here. And John, I'm watching the clock. Oh, we, we got about five minutes left, but this last section just kind of uh, rapid fire. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Great, All right. Man. Let's get into it. So the last section of my show, and I love doing this with people and you'll do great at it. It's called, what would you say to somebody that said, or what would you say to someone that said? Okay. And I'm going to fill in the blank with a statement, okay? And it could be about a little thing or it could be about a big thing, but here's the deal. You have 30 seconds to respond, okay? We, we can't get into philosophy. We can't get into a bunch of first point, second point, gotcha. main point. It is just straight up meat potatoes. You got to give me the first thing off the top of your head. So you think you're up for it? Yeah, man, let's go. Okay. What would you say to someone that said, I simply don't have time to be an intentional father? You will sadly live with the consequences of your lack of intentionality. The pain of regret is greater than the pain of discipline. Make the time. All right. What would you say to someone that said, I'm not comfortable with pastors making money on things that are outside of their normal job duties? I would say the Apostle Paul funded his entire mission by making tents and receiving donations. Uh, 1 Timothy 5 says the elders who teach and lead well are worthy of double honor, and Paul still made tents. So you need to get a larger theology about how money works. 
All right, let's keep going. You're doing great. What would you say to someone that said, if I only have daughters, do I still need to try and become an intentional father? 100%. I've got a whole nother thing that I did for my daughter called 50 Pieces of My Heart, 50 Key Deposits Every Dad Needs to Make in His Daughter's Life. I'm working on that right now. They okay. need it. Very good. Well, we'll make sure to have you back on whenever that is done because our guys definitely need that as well. What would you say to someone that said, Australia will never be as good at rugby as New Zealand? That sadly may be true. <laughs> I mean, we that close, sadly right? may be true. I can acknowledge the All Blacks are something else. Okay, I, I've got a neighbor that lives a few doors down that used to play for the All Blacks, so I kind of asked that yes, question okay. specifically for him. Had to get that needle in here. Yes. Just a few more left. What would you say to someone that said, my number one goal as a man is to provide financially for my family. The rest will take care of itself. It will not take care of itself. You're wrong. You need a bigger view of success, and I think you need to ask the people who you were responsible for what does success look like in our relationship, not just financially? Money does matter because a lack of money creates stress and strain that's often unnecessary. But you need a bigger view and a, a wider vision of relationships. All right. What would you say to someone that said the Western church will eventually collapse? That's not true. They're wrong. Give me a, yeah, give me I a mean, little Jesus bit more. Jesus is building his church. In yeah. this, That is the spirit of Elijah. Well, was me. I'm the only one. Jesus is, and, and God's like, there's 7,000 people I've got for myself. God's plans are always bigger than our ability to understand them. He'll always have a faithful remnant. All right. What would you say to someone that said, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie? Oi, oi, oi. I've always wanted to do that, and it was yes. never appropriate until this exact moment. There so thank you, you for allowing me to do that. But last question of the day here, all right, John? What would you say to someone that said masculinity is inherently toxic? They're wrong. They're wrong. That's it. I agree that they're wrong. Definitely guys that listen to this show agree that they're wrong. But John, we have taken a lot of your time today and we went into a lot of detail in this book. Again, guys, the book is in the show notes, The Intentional Father. But you know, we, we don't have time to go into any of the other issues, any other cans of worms that I opened. But that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, nah, man, this was good. Thanks so much for listening, taking the time. And I really appreciate you reading the book and giving a thoughtful sort of back and forth on it. A lot of folks just like wing meta questions. It's obvious you worked hard. Thanks for taking the time to do that. I respect that. Well, I appreciate that. That is my thing. If you're going to donate your time to me, I better donate my thought and input into the things that you've done because that's better for you, better for me, and certainly better for the audience. But John Tyson, thank you so much for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. No worries. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed our interview with John Tyson. There's a lot of practical knowledge and wisdom in there, a lot of stuff for you to take and chew on later. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that with content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got two links for you today. I've got a link to the Amazon link where you can go and pick up The Intentional Father by John Tyson. And I've also got The Intentional Father by John Tyson from Barna. So you can order from either of those places. And then also, I've got a link to the primal path, which we talked about in the interview. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also, we also want to thank the band August Burns 
Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>